look, the life isn't working 18 hours a day, not seeing your kids and going from job to job. Because while we talk about the fact that we want our kids to, to understand, appreciate, and value the culture that we have, what they have back home, we actually can't do that if we're constantly spending time working because we got to pay bills or send money home. Have you ever wondered what it's like to leave behind every single thing you know and start a new life in a foreign country? From my experience, it can be a struggle. On the Newcomers podcast, I'll be sharing my story as well as the stories of other immigrants. We'll be talking about the joys and struggles of starting afresh. My name is Dozier and I'm looking forward to being your host. Welcome back, everyone, to the Newcomers Podcast. I'm your host, Doziane Buram, and today I have with me Sam Badu of Flary Health. How are you doing? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like every single time we talk, it's always really interesting. Um, but, well, thank you for doing this with me. Um, the goal here is just kind of talk about your journey. And so I'm just going to start off with... Um, um, so... Let's start off with your journey. Like, how, like, why did you move to the States? I mean, because I know you said to me you had a really good thing going back in Ghana. Yeah. Um, really interesting. Um, one, I love your podcast. So I, I have been listening to uh, some of the previous Thanks. episodes and then the videos. Um, but why did I move to the States? You know, no reason other than wanting better for myself and my family. My, my my entire family lives in Ghana. Um, my sister, my brother, um, there's three of us. Uh, my parents, they all live in Ghana. Yeah. Right. Um, nothing other than wanting better for myself um, and and my kids. Right. When I moved to the states, I already had two kids. Um, so relatively, you know, older. Um, but I used to visit the States when I was in college. It never occurred to me that I wanted to live here. Why? Because I thought, you know, I was always going to figure out something to do. Right. After college, I'd gone to Ghana and started a number of businesses. Um, I was very, very stubborn about what I thought my future was going to be. Um, and so in 2014, I was running a consultancy um, and things had started to get hard. I started to notice it. Clients were defaulting. And, you know, this was like Ghana and, you know, West Africa before like the venture capital boom. So nobody runs a business that is financed or supported by some VC, right? It's all profit or you're not eating, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when people start to mess with your paycheck, like it directly has an impact on your life um, on that end. And so I was like, wait, I've got a few months on my US visa. I'm noticing that things are getting harder. The political situation was also getting trickier. I wanted something different. So, um, my then girlfriend um, and now my wife, we sat down and we wrote a plan. 
like we actually wrote a plan. Um, it's still it's still there. I, I usually keep a diary. Like till today, I'm a paper person, so I still have a physical diary. And we wrote what we wanted it to be. In, initially, the plan was to come to the states, figure out how things would be for a year, and then move to Australia. <laughs> Believe it or not. Um, you know, and I had applied for a master's program at uh, the University of Queensland and uh, Victoria University and a couple of others. So I just thought it was going to be like a transition. I moved here, um, moved to New York at first, and it was a hustle, right? But we'll, we'll talk more about that. So that's that's really the reason why I moved. Um, right from the start, it was, it was about like economic betterment, if you'll put it that way. So let's talk about that hustle. So like, I mean, because I'm not going to let that go because <laughs> I really want to hear about that. Like, so you moved to New York um, and the world and what, what happened? What, what was next? What happened next? So what happened next? Um, I had an aunt who lived in New York. Um, you know, really, really kind. Uh, till today, she's the one that keeps me really close to, to New York because otherwise I stay away from that city. Um, New York is a vibe. It's very much the opposite of who I am. I'm, I'm extroverted, but I like chill places. New York is a bustle all the time. And she lived in the Bronx, right? So it was really, you know, the heart of everything that was going on. And when I got there, it's like, well, you're here. I can't really help you do much, but I can give you a place to lay your head. Right, which is a lot if you think of what rent costs in New York. Um, and so my very next day, I woke up and walked to Fordham asking every single person that I knew, hey, could you give me a job? Now, this became, um, you know, odds and ends and doing one thing after the other. Like, it was really a hustle for the next year. Um you know, and it, it would have been even worse if not for the fact that I still had clients that I was consulting for virtually, um, you know, supporting, you know, partially uh, my lifestyle. So that was a blessing, which is the reason why, you know, when I hear people talk about remote work and why it won't work, like you actually don't understand what remote work means to people who are working remotely, right? Um, it democratizes your options, even in the face of really harsh, um, you know, socioeconomic yeah. or political conditions that are going on. Um, but this hustle continued for about a year until I met a gentleman in uh, the subway one day, and he just struck up a conversation asking, like, hey, where are you from? You know, how long have you been here? Do you like it here? It's like, fuck no, I don't. Why would I like it here? I don't like it here. <laughs> and then he was like, well, if you don't like it, why are you still here? Why haven't you left? And I was like, and go where? It's like, go to the Midwest, hmm? right? Um, now, I pride myself on knowing quite a bit, but very naively, you know, I had the Midwest and then my research around the Midwest, first place I saw was Columbus, Ohio, right? And I didn't really realize until much later that the Midwest was a whole number of states. I mean, it could be anywhere. 
it could have been Minnesota. It could have been, you know, um, uh, Illinois, Chicago. It could have been, you know, Wisconsin. It could have been anywhere. But somehow, the first place I saw was Columbus, Ohio, and I became fixated with the place, right? Um, and and that's what like that hustle, you know, from New York ended up transact uh, transitioning, you know, from from there to the Midwest. And you know what has now been like the last nine years of living in, in Columbus. <laughs> like that is like that is super interesting. Like, so you just met this, this fellow on the subway, and you all just started talking about stuff. Yeah, because like I mean, my wife wasn't with me. I, I didn't have anything going on other than a hustle. So, like, it's peak level. Um, agency and and freedom like mm. you know mm. and sometimes mm. i tell people like don't don't overthink it you know if you're not married if you don't have kids or if you're married and you have kids but they're not with you like explore that like uh, that liberty right yeah. like explore that to your advantage to try out the things because the worst that could happen really only impacts yourself mm. right and and you can afford to take the hit and so how was it finding a job in Columbus? Like, did you, you got a job immediately? Did you just... <laughs> uh, okay, there, there are some things I will try not to say on air, but um, finding a job in Columbus, you know, when I moved here, um, my dad's younger brother actually uh, lives here. He, he's been here a while. Um, and so thankfully, again, um, the most important thing is having a place to sleep, right? Mm-hmm. The hustle itself is free. Everything else, as so long as you have a place to lay your head, um, that was the advantage uh, for me. And so, like everything else, hey, you know, and he'll tell you in in uh, um, you know, you can sleep here. <laughs> That's cool, right? And and when I came, he himself was going through like a whole transition. So uh, he he had a little bit more liberty, uh, having gotten divorced. Uh, so. You know, it was it was interesting being there, but I started out with a 1.2 mile walk every morning, right from where we lived on the north side of Columbus to Easting, which was where like all the shops and everything were asking. Because um, at that point in time, my visa had expired. Um, I didn't have uh, documentation, so it didn't matter how smart you were or what your background was, right? You just literally could not work legally. <laughs> um, and so you start to find creative ways of um, figuring out how the system works. Um, you know, continued on, but also like the one thing that was important was maintaining, uh, I'll put it this way, there are things in your life that you're gonna be able to control and things that you can't control it's always really important that you build a framework for analyzing the situations that you find yourself in. We're very quick as people to raise up our hands and say, well, I don't have any control over this, but really pay attention. Like, do you not have any control? So in my case, I didn't have control over the fact that I did not have a work permit, right? I didn't have control over the fact that I could not work legally. But I did have control over what I spent my time on. I did have control over 
the relationships that I built. I did have control over how I presented myself and showed up in the larger, you know, environment or society that was the place where I lived. Most people tend to cower under pressure and try to remain small or try to just like focus on the small picture. It never, ever works, right? Maintaining autonomy or maintaining agency is about understanding where you can express that agency. And so I attended all of the tech conferences or events that I could go to. And there was one in particular that, you know, made a phenomenal difference in my life uh, called Starting Line. Um, it doesn't exist anymore. The, the folks that have founded it now all run different things. But what it did was it got me very early um, involved in the tech renaissance that was happening in Columbus, right? When I moved here, Columbus was in this five-year journey um, of redefining itself, right? So all of the founders that have built billion-dollar businesses today here, right, I know all of them to some degree because it's a very small place, um, right? Not very diverse, but, you know, quite small in that way. And so when I think of like your original question, how was the hustle? Well, there was the hustle that was trying to figure out what to do, right? And then there was the hustle, which was trying to define who I wanted to be in this new place where I lived. And it's the same for every single person, right? Every single person. Your relationships have nothing to do with how much you earn, what you do, or how you do it. It has everything to do with how you show up, who you are, your integrity, your interactions in that way. So navigated that until I ended up, you know, uh, meeting an army recruiter, right? Um, and started the journey of, you know, joining the military, which became my pathway to citizenship. Essentially. That's amazing. But, you know, you, you raise a really important point. I, mean, I think what we were talking about before we started recording, where, where we talked about surviving, like mm -hmm. trying to survive is not what's going to make you survive. You know, that's that sort of thing, um, which is, which kind of goes back to what you say about there's, yeah. there's the hustle. Like you're just trying to settle in and you're trying to survive. Yeah. And there's who you think you can be. And so because it goes back again to the first thing you said, I wanted a better life for myself. So I came to a better environment. And so are you going to say because you're trying to survive, you don't take full advantage of that environment and all the potential that you can possibly explore within the environment? Are you going to just sit down and say, oh, you know what, man, look, things are not working how I want to be. I just want to survive. And I see a lot of immigrants kind of fall into that part where, you know what, they're just trying to survive. And then you get caught up in that journey and then you raise your head up 10 years later and you're like, no, I, I Bro, it's so this. true. It's so true, right? Um, I have friends that left high school when we were back in, in high school, right? And I've gone to Morocco for, for five years to go study, right? Um, and I met some of those friends in the US and till today, right? They, they haven't built anything like necessarily, like if you look at it from an advantage of time um, standpoint, right? If someone has like a five-year leadway yeah. heading to the US, right? 
everything that you do is directly a, a factor of like the choices that you make, the outcomes that you get, mm-hmm. right? And the United States, more so than any other country, is the one place where your outcomes are a direct reflection on your choices. Mm-hmm. Like nobody else is really responsible for how you end up. You are, mm-hmm. right? Because the country supports initiative. Mm-hmm. And so when people move here and you get into the mindset of, wow, this is the first time I'm making, what, like 10 years ago, that's $11 an hour, which was beating minimum wage by $2.20. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. Or $13, $14, $15 an hour, mm-hmm. right. Like, yeah, someone who works at McDonald's could be making more than a bank manager in Nigeria. Yeah. But, like, really, is that it? it? Is that the definition of you leaving, um, you know, Adiokuta coming here all the way so that you can come and do that, yeah. right? And that's that's the, the real hustle. It's knowing that don't get into that mindset where a few dollars are okay. Get into the mindset of, I can own this town. Like I can literally <laughs> own this town if I, I just do that. the work, right? And that's the reason why when you look at all of the Nigerians that you know, all the Ghanaians that are like excelling, there's a mental shift when they realize that, damn, for every ounce of effort, there is a 10x payoff that exists. And hard work is not, there's nothing strange to us. Yeah. So why won't you do it? Yeah. So let's kind of go back a bit and talk about your experience yeah. at the military. How was that? Like, <laughs> yeah. So the the U.S. Army, um, and and maybe I explain. I get a lot of people ask, you know, why that decision, right? Of all the things that you could do, right? Of all the different pathways that you had, why the military? Uh, I'll say this: uh, one, I wasn't a cadet when I was in. Uh, high school, so I was in the Air Force Cadet. Uh, I went to Atsado College, um, which was a boys' school that was it was an all boys boarding school that was notorious for being hardcore, right? Mm-hmm. And so you leave with that mindset that like we don't just do the easiest. Like I want it hard, and so for me it's like a constant test, right? Um, also moving here, I didn't go to school here. Um, right. I didn't grow up here. I don't have relatives here. I don't have a lot of friends here. Right. You wouldn't get far without like a network. That's why college alumni are important. So people who come to school here and go to college here is always great because it would be fine. Fraternities are important because it helps you build, you know, and carve out a group of people who share a mindset. Mm. For me, I couldn't go back. I mean, I could go to college and, and go do all of that again, but that's four years of my life that I didn't want to repeat, right? If I want to go to college, it's because it's benefiting something particular that I want to do. Um, I couldn't go back to, to high school and develop all of those relationships. And I couldn't develop all of the friends um, in that way. On the other hand, the military is a self-selected group of people who choose to come together with like a mindset. Not only that, the process of becoming a soldier forges a mindset that is shared today by millions of people who identify with that. I wanted that. 
I wanted a group of people where I felt like I belonged and that saw the world in the way that um, I see it, right? My parents are as African as you can expect. Yeah. My mindset about things are the way that like it is, right? So that for me was very, very appealing. I like the discipline. I like the structure. I like, you know, the challenge that came with it. And I also had in mind that like I wanted to be my fittest right before I turned to age 30. Right? And I wanted to see if I could do it, right? Um, and so for me, that as a pathway, I loved it. I loved every really bit of it, um, you know, going in. Um, and, and to be honest, compared to what we experienced back home, like nobody actually beats you in the military, right? <laughs> nobody lays hands on you. Because it's 2023 or, you know, I joined 2017. But, you know, compared to, like, if you're back home. Yeah, all the videos we see. (laughs) Yeah, like, it's almost as if they're trying to kill you, right? (laughs) Actively. And so for for me, you know, in contrast, I love it. (laughs) So I was just going to ask you, like, what was your biggest cultural shock going in there? Like, I mean, like... Because I can imagine it's so hmm. different. Yeah, it is. It is. But um, I guess my biggest shock, not necessarily a cultural shock, but my biggest shock was the fact that like, it wasn't crazy enough. <laughs> and, and for me, Are like, you sure I guess... Yes, I mean, what's the head out? <laughs> I, I don't know. But that's, that's honestly how, how I feel, though. Like, and I've told I told like some of my drill sergeants that you know it's just physical and and mm-hmm. you know I'm 33 now um, like they're just things that I don't do as well as like I used to do back then and yeah. I went in with like you know 17 year olds 18 year olds 19 year olds mm-hmm. right that was like the motivation right you felt older than everybody that was mm-hmm. there um, but. To be honest, like sometimes I look at it and I smile and I'm like, yo, you guys should wrap this up, right? <laughs> like it, it felt good, right? In, in that way. And it sucks. It sucks to like run, you know, two miles, three miles. It, it sucks to be doing all the, mm. you know, crazy, uh, you know, things that they do to, to break you. But, you know, that was a shock for me. The second thing was, it was a shock seeing that, like, for most young people, like, it was the first time they were actually leaving home. Mm. You know, I went to boarding school at 14, mm. right? Prior to that, um, I'd lived, you know, at the church mission house. So when I think about it, like, I didn't really spend a lot of time at home with my parents, mm. right? Also growing up, we were very, very adventurous. We spent a lot of time roaming, causing trouble, doing stupid shit, right? Um, that these days, even kids, like, don't get raised in that same way. Like, you leave and you have to know that, like, your parents expect you to be back at 6 o'clock. But from 9 a.m. in the morning, mm. you know, if it's, there's no school, even when there's school, when you come back at 2 p.m., like, 2 to 6, like, You're out I was there. out rampaging and, and doing all sorts of shit. Right. And and I looked at these kids and 
most of them, this was the first time away from home. And it was, it was eye opening, you know, to see that new perspective. Um, you know, I was just used to like kids just doing crazy things all the time. Now talking about that, so you, I assume your family is now here with you, right? Yeah, so my, my wife and my kids are, are here. Uh, well, two of them. Well, one of my kids is still not here yet. Oh, okay. And so just like what, what, are, what have been the biggest differences with raising, if you're raising them back in Ghana and raising them here now? Uh, bro, don't get started. Um, <laughs> Please go. <laughs> first and foremost, like I really don't like it. I don't like it. I, I think raising kids here really, really tests you. Mm. Um, a lot of things that we take for granted is primarily because we have a community around yes. us back home. Yes. Right? Yes. It means that if my dad is not actively monitoring me, my neighbor is, mm. right? Mm. Even the lady that lives all the way up, right, past the church, you know, everybody knows who you are and whose kids yeah. you are. Mm. Everybody is constantly monitoring you. Everybody is going to drop some information to your parents on you. But we, we took that for granted, yes. right? That we had lots of checks around us. Even when you didn't think my parents knew my teachers at school, right? I don't know all of my, my daughter's teachers. In fact, I don't know a lot of them. Her first school, yeah, I had a couple of them that came to the house. But my, my mom was a caterer, right? She still is. She would make food to take to the school just so she could build a rapport with the teachers so that they tell her when I'm misbehaving. We had eyes everywhere. And so while we had a lot more freedom, we had a lot more like... Minders, like almost like having... Yeah. Community of minders. Yeah, that's a huge difference yes. here, actually. Yes. The way you put it, like... <laughs> it, it absolutely is. And, and when you grow, right? And I had kids relatively early, like... When you when you grow and now you think about it, you realize that that is what the society, like as a first off, does not have. Even in immigrant societies, people actively, you know, funny enough, seek to live, especially like the more the more the more you do better financially. And and this is like a uniquely African immigrant mindset, bro. The more you do better financially, the thing that you hear is, oh, I want to live someplace where there are no Africans. I'm like, what, is what are you talking about? <laughs> Every other immigrant community, the Asian immigrant community, the Indian immigrant community, the Jewish immigrant community, they understand that in order for them to uniquely raise kids who will identify with their culture, with their upbringing, with their values, it comes by building some sort of network and community around yeah. them. And so they actively buy the properties that are around them, rent it out, lease it out to other people like them. We as a people seem to think the opposite right? I want to be the only black Ghanaian living in a community surrounded by just other well-to-do white people. And we wonder why things end up the way that they are. There's nothing wrong with our culture. 
we just don't value it enough. Yeah. If we pay any homage to it, it's just in words and in the more visible ways. Yeah. Like the, the listening fashion. to Afro, yeah, fashion Music. and wearing clothes or wearing waistbeats, right? Or listening to Afro beats. It's not the culture. Yeah. We, we don't know much about ourselves and that's why we devalue ourselves. But that's a whole other conversation. Yesterday, I was a keynote speaker at um, the African Night event at Denison University, which is close by uh, to Columbus. And, you know, they had like 16 African countries represented, right? From Eritrea to, you know, Djibouti. And I was looking at all these kids, most of them who weren't born back home, and they're all here. And I'm trying to understand like their mindset. And it made me feel old, first and foremost, but like looking at all these college students, I realized that, bro, if we're not doing some work, we're going to end up not in a really good way, you know? But to come to it, raising kids here is very, very difficult, right? My daughter, and she's only been here, Layla's only been here like three years, right? She spent time in Zimbabwe. She's gone to boarding school in Zambia. She's been in schools in Ghana, right? And so from a multicultural standpoint, she has a good exposure. Mm-hmm. But moving her here, the hardest thing that I've ever heard from here from her was 2020, right? When um, she came and she, she tells me, oh, I don't want to go to school. Why? Because what difference is it going to wait? Uh, is it going to make? You know, I might just get shut down. You know, for being black, and and I'm like, damn. These are things that like we never ever will talk about in Ghana ever. Like this is not a conversation that I've had with my parents, but it's not a conversation that I'm ever going to have, right? And it's really really hard to ignore that. Right? Our struggles are not just like, how do you thrive economically? It's also, how do you end up not breaking your children or traumatizing them with everything that they see? Because outside of everything else, seeing an African American being abused, right? They're no different from me. In fact, the cops can't tell whether I'm African American or not. There's no difference. And the worst part is, like, when I speak, most people think, oh, I wouldn't have thought you were born in Ghana. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, because I know how to assimilate doesn't necessarily mean I don't know where I'm from, right? Try me and get me angry. And then my accent <laughs> is going to switch back to what it is. <laughs> right? But for, for her to have to see that, you know, it's, it's hard. Like things that like, you know, and, and I talk about it all the time. Like, I'm hard, hard. My wife says it all the time. Like, it's like you don't have a variance. You only have one mode, right? Dressing. Like, things that really, really bother me were like, you're not going to wear that and then go out with me, right? Because that's just going to start a whole new, like, level of, of conversation. But it's what she sees. Yeah. Right? And I'm like, okay, how do we even address this? You know, how do we talk about these things? What she sees as a culture here and how we address it at home. And sometimes, to be honest, it's just, it's just hard. 
to have honest conversations about the fact that life here is different from life back home. How do I choose my battles and what not to engage over? How do I, you know, know when to be soft and, you know, when to be hard about setting things? Hmm. It, it's just all very difficult. So navigating life here, and then my son is born here, right? He's going to have a completely different experience yeah. from like any of my kids, right? And, and then Laura is still back home. Right? She's in Angola right now. And, you know, when I think about all of these different experiences that my kids are having, like, I wonder if I am even capable of addressing all of these things, <laughs> right? I, I, do, do they need therapy? I, I don't know. I think that I think that what I say to myself now is my job is a guide. Um, because like yeah, like I have also have a boy who was born here too. Um, he's almost two now. The, the first one was born in Nigeria, but he came here when he was four, so he probably he's probably forgotten about it. He only remembers when his grandparents come around. But I feel like my job is just to guide them and just say like, you know, this is who we are. And I'm all for having diverse experiences because I feel like um, the world will be won by those who can move between cultures and who can not necessarily adopt it, but understand it. Then you can decide what to adopt because really everyone is still learning and everyone is, every culture is still evolving over time. And so my hope is that my job is I guide them and raise two boys who are kind, who are understanding who know where they're from and who know what they stand for, who know what the family values stand for, but also able to understand that not everybody's like them and I'm empathetic enough to say to themselves that this is who that person is and I'm going to appreciate that person for who they are. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's who I want to be because we brought shared different values and that's okay because there's really no formula. I mean, yes, we have all the Bibles and stuff, but we really, we don't know if some of that is real. We, we believe it's real. Some people don't believe it's real. And that's fair. That's who they are. It doesn't mean that they are right or I'm wrong. It's just, what we all understand. And it's, it still doesn't change the fact that every now and then you feel frustrated or you feel like, what the hell is going on? You know, which is also part of why yeah. we moved to Calgary because we were in Ottawa before. We didn't have a big Nigerian community there. We just, me and my wife were like, you know, let's move to Calgary. We have more friends here. They have more uncles, more aunties, more people they can talk to, more people that look like them, more people that talk like them or more people that like at least share the same values with them and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then so, yeah, they're experiencing the world, and I'm all for them experiencing the world. I'm all for them doing all those stuff. But again, like you said, it doesn't change. You don't. You, everyone is who they are, you know. And when you when you mix with others, you get better. But doesn't mean you should forget where you're from, you know. And so yeah, you know, it's it's really really like one of the things that I talk about with with work, right? Obviously, the work that we do at Flurry is mm -hmm. is all about. Um, empowering immigrants to thrive, to be the best version of themselves they can possibly be. Yeah. And I absolutely believe that having gone through that experience, right? Look, the life isn't working 18 hours a day, not seeing your kids and going from job to job. Because while we talk about the fact that we want our kids to, to understand, appreciate, and value the culture that we have, what they have back home. We actually can't do that if we're constantly spending time working because we got to pay bills or send money home. And so I, 
everything comes down to the choices and the opportunities that we have, right? Consistently, I keep telling, talking to people and telling them like, for Flurry, right? Our job will be done if in the next 10 years, we can actually reduce the volume of remittances that get sent by immigrants home. It sounds crazy to people because we've been conditioned to think every single year when they release the numbers, that yes, number should be going up. It should not be going up. Because the more it goes up, what it actually means is that these are all of the people that we squeeze money from who are now living mediocre lives because a part of them cannot invest that money into their own like amazing human experience. Mm. That for me is the ultimate crime against immigrants. It's the reason why I wake up and do what I do because if we want our community to thrive, we have to be in the, in, in the capacity to buy our communities, to buy homes, to own homes and rent it to others, to own businesses in our neighborhoods that serve. If you think about it, Hispanics own schools, Chinese own schools, right? What African community have you seen owns its own hospitals, owns its own schools, owns its own grocery uh, shops? If you go to the typical African market, it looks worse than a store in Ghana. And that's the thing that it doesn't, it doesn't even register. If you go to a typical African restaurant, it looks worse. And, and if you've been to Lagos recently, I was there bro, in Lagos, Lagos restaurants are popping. Like, you know, we actually leave here and go back home and have an even more amazing experience than we do living in America, and it's insane. Yeah. I was with a group of Nigerians in, um, in Missouri, right, just not too long ago for the only uh, Africa Business School conference. Mm -hmm. And it was the very same thing. We wanted to go to a restaurant, right? We ended up going to, um, I think, what? Uh, Harvest Watch is what we ended up going to. And if I had a group of people, dignitaries in town, coming to an Africa business conference, if we were to take them to an African restaurant, let everybody start listing out how many restaurants in their city that are African they'll be able to take them to. Yeah. <laughs> what is Sad. the aesthetic of an African restaurant? What is the way that we represent that to the city? Outside of uh, um, Lagos Times Square, right, um, in, in New York, I think there's one in how many, called Equi or something. Yeah, really right. Good. How many how many restaurants would we be able to take? And it's almost as if we're forgetting that as immigrants, we owe it to ourselves to actually make life better for ourselves. If you don't fill your cup, you cannot fill the cup of other people. Basically, what will happen is you will dim your own light. You will live a less than possible life. For yourself and i am i am extremely passionate about this but immigrants need to understand that that age of mindless transfers has to stop 
pareho mo na. <laughs> let's talk about Flurry now since we're already, since we're already there. Let's talk a bit about it. Because <laughs> I see you already shared a bit about why you started the business. Um, but yeah, let's I'll still ask. Tell me yeah, about Yeah, so, Flurry. you know, Flurry is my fifth, you know, venture. You know, um, it's also the first time where my work identity and my personal identity, right, coincide. Nice. Um, it's taking a long time getting there, but I wake up and it doesn't feel like work. It literally feels like, you know, living um, my life. My friends keep asking me, like, when do you go to work? They haven't yet figured out that. Yeah, today I'm in the office, but they haven't yet figured out that, like, I work from home most of the time. They all get surprised when, like, I'm the person that will go pick up their kids from, from school. I'm the person that they'll come drop off their kids when they care bills, right? I'm the person that will go, you know, do anything because, like, I have that flexibility. But Flurry has been a long journey getting here. You know, I take everything that I've experienced in my life. Um, when I went to Morocco, right? It's a great country to live in, but I'm not in the business of sugarcoating things. Morocco and most North African countries still have, you know, an identity uh, issue that bleeds into racism between, you know, North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, right? It's not always easy, right? I had an unlikely great experience that not everybody shares, right? I have been witness to, you know, people being attacked, robbed, um, people being raped, right, for the fact that they were Black in a North African country. Now, it doesn't negate the fact or take away the fact that the larger population is great. People are hospitable. I enjoyed the country so much. My daughter was born in Morocco, right? Um, I have friends who live there, friends who are from there. I love the country. And I always talk about the fact that if I retire, I will live there. But I also, after school, worked for a German nonprofit, Comité d'Entraide Internationale, where our primary mandate and focus was on helping Sub-Saharan African immigrants that were trying to get into Europe. Now, this is a part that I rarely talk about and haven't really found uh, the opportunity. Um, we work with a lot of the immigrants that you end up seeing on TV. Um, the people who take the boats, who die on a trip to Italy. Like, I have actually been in the middle of that and seen that. My humanity and my perspective of humanity has been tested for that. I've seen a cop drive a vehicle and hit intentionally a sub-Saharan African pregnant woman. I've seen people live in forests because they have no housing. They build encampments in forests. When I moved to Morocco, I lived in Rabat. I've lived in lots of different places there, but I lived the longest in Ujda. Ujda is close to the Algerian border. A lot of people go through there when they are trying to get into um, 
either go through the desert or they're trying to get to Europe. Those experiences and seeing other Africans go through that, it's the most inhumane migration experience. Most people having heard of what happens at Sita, Sura, most people having heard of what happens at Malalia when people are trying to cross into the Spanish enclaves. It is not pretty, right? And to see that, people go through that, right? And get into a new country and have to rebuild from scratch. For so many people I know who've lost their lives, right? Like it's nothing. To make it and get there is not just a defiance of all of the impossibilities, but it's also the beginning of a chapter. A lot of people talk about Cabin Lamb, right? Um, the, the dude who, who does the, the mining. Um, yeah. The only reason why everybody talks about him is because he managed to build something off his life. But think of his life before he became famous. That is what most people experience. They struggle with the language, trying to pick up Italian. They struggle with massive amounts of discrimination. We, we talk about the US, but most people have no idea how bad it is, right, in Italy or Portugal to be a black undocumented immigrant. And to have to go through that, to start to build a life, regardless of the pathway that you take, you deserve, right, to make the most of that life and that opportunity that you've got. And for me, that is my responsibility, right, towards the mission that we have here. Right. Having gone through that, having myself become undocumented, you know, then documented, and then living this experience, I owe it to every single person who, as a result of their position, as a result of their immigration situation, as a result of their status, is not able to advocate for themselves. I am lucky enough to be able to not just build a company, but to represent all of these people, right? In building something that truly serves them. And so Flurry is built off of the idea that an immigrant's journey needs to lead, it, it needs to lead to, to real, real positive outcomes for that immigrant first and foremost. Yeah. That's who I represent. Like, that is my customer. That's the person that I advocate for every single day, right? And for that immigrant to thrive, there are a number of things that need to happen. One, that immigrant needs to be able to access opportunity, to actually understand what their options are in their country of adoption. So that's the first. Two, that immigrant needs to be supported to do the things that they need to do for themselves 
and for the people that they love. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, a big part of an immigrant's experience in the diaspora is rooted around their responsibility to the people that they left behind. Rightfully so, right? If you come from places like Brongahafo, right, in Ghana, where families band together to sell their properties, their land, so one person can make that treacherous journey to travel to another country, you understand that that person represents the entire family's insurance policy. So it is not just a mere acknowledgement of responsibility. It is an acknowledgement of a responsibility that is owed to that family. But that does not take precedence or that does not mean that your personal life as that immigrant who mm-hmm. actually went through the experience needs to be ignored. Yeah. And so Flurry exists to acknowledge the individual situation and experiences of each immigrant and their journey and to empower them to be able to live it in a way that does not place their own personal financial wellness in jeopardy. That is the mission. Beautiful. I love it. Right? That's why we exist. And everything else that we build is basically to reinforce that. So when you take what we've just talked about, right? Flurry started with healthcare. Why? Because 83% of people, to get them to send money, tell them a story about how my can't go to the hospital. Right? Or how, you know, Uncle in the village, right, is having a hernia and needs to pay $500 at the hospital before they, they get taken care of. That is what gets money out of our pockets. Because these are the people that you remember from your childhood, my grandmother growing up, right? And so if I'm here, the least I can do is yeah. to ensure that they can live, mm-hmm. right? Because that is always life or death. I'm not going to send you money to go buy a pair of jeans, yeah. right? But I'll send you money if you tell me you need to go to the pharmacy. And so for years, this has been exploited. Because are you going to take the risk of not knowing? Ah, maybe, maybe Uncle is lying. I don't know. I... Okay, I'm just going to send this $50. Even if I didn't send 200 let me send this yeah. $50. And they get you every single time. Right? And so to do that, we started with healthcare. Reimagine the way that immigrants take care of their families back home. Right? By building transparency. By building efficiency. By building accountability. And to do that, we needed to completely change it. I tell people this all the time. Our goal is to end the transfer. It doesn't make sense. And so today, right, and you're an example. For us, when you become a member for Flurry, it starts with your family care manager. You have a family care manager who is responsible for verifying, right, and for attesting to the fact that your family back home needs this support. That's the first part. An independent party that is there to help navigate that. So now you don't have to worry about someone telling you that you have to go pay $5,000. Your family care manager will verify that. Number two, you get a dedicated virtual primary care physician. Now, this is where it gets a bit technical. So if you've ever heard of Kaiser Permanente, right? Big healthcare system in the US, 
Now, Kaiser is also known for a particular, you know, healthcare, you know, uh, uh, structure, right? They are integrated healthcare systems. Now, what Kaiser proposed was that in order to ensure that outcomes for patients are always elevated, right? Place a primary care doctor, a primary care physician at the center of all of their healthcare encounters. Mm-hmm. So for this one person, before they go get a specialist, right? Their primary care physician is going to talk about it and write a referral. Before they go see an eye doctor, they're going to talk to their primary care physician about it before they go there. Before they see or take any medication, their primary care physician reviews it and then tells them to go ahead and take it. If there are any questions about the dosage of the medication that they're taking, their primary care physician is first to know and will write up and follow up with the doctor that prescribed it, mm-hmm. right? This allows people to be more informed, but also more empowered because they have a dedicated doctor yeah. who ensures continuity of care. This is what we're replicating at Flurry. Right. And so with the membership, your primary care physician is supposed to help you navigate every point of care that you need. Mm. Rather than what we see today back home, where oh you went to Lagoon Hospital today. today. Next week you went to Evercare, right? Yeah. The next time you said you didn't like the hospital uh, or the way the doctor spoke to you at Evercare and your friend told you about a new naturopathic yeah. hospital somewhere, so you want to go try that one. That is the experience and the way that we think of healthcare. Right. And so you've scattered all this information everywhere, but we actually are never able to piece it together and say, hey, over the last 10 years, like you actually developed this 10 years ago. It's starting to become something else. I think this is what your course of treatment should be because we have data. And Flurry is actually building that. And so we're building a unified, right, way for you to provide quality primary care access, right, to your family back home. And then based on that, you can add on all of the other pieces, whether Mm -hmm. it's a surgery, Mm -hmm. it's an insurance plan, but you will add it on because you have data Mm -hmm. and access to a virtual primary care physician that's able to make those decisions with your loved one. So when we build that, what we're doing here is empowering the person who's in the diaspora to now be able to provide care for their loved one and stop guessing, right? But also to get out of the cycle of constantly getting money. And because we prepay for all of this care, mm-hmm. you never actually have to send money to Nigeria, right? Your money is only sent here, right? So that you always have verified uh, um, proof of care, yes. but also you know that you can hold accountable the party that you're working with here. Love it. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I'm a bit biased because I really use service, but. <laughs> I mean, I absolutely love um, what you all are building, especially the data part. Because for me, like, I mean, I didn't even think about the primary care physician part, but that absolutely makes sense. Because when we're in Nigeria, we're like that, where the only person that had one single hospital was my kid. Like, he had just one pediatrician. But for me and my wife, it was depending on on what happened at the hospital would define where you go to. And then before you know, you have data everywhere and there's yeah. no record of who you are or what was going on with you. Unlike here yeah. where I have a primary GP that I go for, go to for yeah. anything else, and he knows everything's going on with me. I know I have an exactly. annual check in the next couple of months and he just knows what's going on in my life. Like, if I come there, there's a file that says, hey, Dozier was here 
two months ago, X happened with him and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been pretty interesting, um, to be honest. Uh, I really love every part of the conversation. I think I just have a couple, when we, like one more, two more questions for me, you. Okay. One is basically, um, can you tell me about what you've missed most about home here? Yeah. <laughs> ah, so my mom was a cake for a while. Ah. Food, food is like the biggest part, you know. And I was just telling my wife yesterday that, bro, if I couldn't cook, that would be my biggest regret, <laughs> right? If I could not cook, right? Because I made I made palm nut soup, um, you know, a few days ago, yeah. right? Um, and I was literally having palm nut soup with uh, fried plantain dodo yesterday. And I was literally standing there, standing in the kitchen, and I was like, man, I, I'm enjoying this food. <laughs> right? And, and I just thought, it would be so much worse if I could not cook. Because I miss my mom's cooking. I miss, you know, all the food growing up. That is the one thing that, man, if, if anybody is going to get me, it's, it's the food that will get me. It's the food that will get me. Um, the other is like the very clearly defined, you know, boundary between enjoying life and just working. Right? Even until today, like today, if I am in Kenya, if I'm in, you know, Lagos, um, I might work into the night, but at some point in time, boy, much jai. So, so the, the thing is, like, it is always there and is a constant. But somehow, when I get back here, right, the lines get so blurred. Like, I never, ever say, okay, you know, we're turning up, we're going here. That, for me, is a thing that will continuously define the difference between living back home and living here. It just does not hit the same. Why does that happen, though? Because, yeah, you you know, I I never thought about it that way, but it happens to us, too, where, like, I think what I started doing to kind of help myself was I started saying to myself that once it's 12 noon on Fridays, I literally just shut down. Maybe I'm not going to jay or anything, but I just shut down. I'm not going to do any work till Sunday. Like, I'm just going to yeah. try and spend, because we just get caught up in yeah. work and work and work and work and work. And the week is gone. The next yeah. week is gone. The other day, my wife was like, wow, Q1 is done. I'm like, geez, that's actually true. Q1 is done. Like, time yeah. flies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's so true. It's so true. And you know, I'm still working on figuring that out. Um, and my, my wife has a nine to five. Um, and so when, you know, she starts to get frustrated with me um, at just this lack of boundary, right? And now, like, her new talk track is the fact that, oh, you say you don't have time, you don't have time, but go to Lagos right now. All I hear is, <laughs> you know, oh, you're going here, you're going there. How do you find the time to do that, but you don't find... I, I still don't have an answer for that, but like the moment I touch down on the continent, it's like a different mindset. Like I know that I am more than just my work, but here I, I'm still trying to figure that out. So those two yeah. things, like the food 
and then the 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 boundary you know between pleasure and 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 work is is just like so blurred yeah it's probably it's probably i feel like it's probably something to do with the the, the tendency of an immigrant the first gen immigrant to try to survive so even though yeah, yeah. we we actualize all those things just at the back of your head you just sort of know that you're on a clock i mean like a friend said to me some days ago um she was like you know I got a house because I'm over 40 and I don't pay I'm I don't be paying mortgage when I'm 60 plus like like that's how that be when I'm to pay my mortgage and I like for me like that was I was like geez that's so true like that is crazy like you have to think about all those things and you have to think about mm-hmm. your age you think about when you moved and think about how old you are then every other thing flows on from there and I think that just shows up in how we approach work yeah um I think the last question I have for you is: Can you just tell me one thing you'd have done differently with hindsight when you look about, when you look at your experience, you know, since you moved over here? What's the one thing you've done differently? Hmm. One thing I would have done differently. Um, I don't know if I would have done anything. Um, I'll take that back. I'll, I'll say. I'll say like. I would have sought out um, a lot more like Africans who are doing well um, intentionally in my network, right? Um, my network here is, is mostly, you know, white people. Very recently, because of Clary, um, it started to diversify a lot. And I, I make it like very intentional to mm. engage, find people of African descent and then uh, engage with, I think I would have done that a lot earlier. Like recently, I, I saw a gentleman, um, you know, I'm in this uh, group called Launchpad um, out of uh, San Francisco. And one of the, the guys in, in the group wrote a book, right? Um, his pathway to, to becoming a millionaire, right? Um, and it's so intriguing to see that there the many of us who are like excelling, right? But the information is not socialized, yeah. right? The information is not socialized. Instead, the information is guarded um, very much, you know, because we, we like the strongman uh, mm. uh, mindset, right? There's always one out of the group who's like the, the old girl of the group. But mm. if we don't find enough ways to, to make it possible for other people coming up, right, to be able to see that, like, you know, we want to build an immigrant blueprint so that, for the next wave of people who are leaving and coming here, they don't have to struggle as much. Yeah. Bro, if I did it in five years, they shouldn't have to spend five years because yeah, the, yeah. the information needs to accelerate yeah. for them. And I think that is, you know, the thing that I would have done a, a lot more is actively seek out people like me who are succeeding and understand why. Yeah. Yeah, I like that actually, because um, like I always say to my friends that I think the biggest thing we can start with is building informal communities. I mean, I I'm a big believer in communities, but for some reason, I do think that for the immigrant one, I think the formal ones are not working. Or don't I've not seen them work yet. Like I just feel like the people go in there and then all the bad. All the bad behaviors tends to come out and overshadow the good ones. And then all there's all that mock going on, egos come in, the strong man mentality or strong person mentality starts to happen. 
So yeah. I'm like, I was saying to them that I feel like the informal communities of people that we all just sort of know that we're all on the same journey. We're doing stuff mm-hmm. together. We hang out every now and then. Yeah. That all those things, um, I feel like those things will help us get to to where we want, like make sure that the next folk, next people that come over don't spend as much time as we just trying to find their way or find their feet yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. I, I definitely agree with you. I think, um, you know, ultimately the the goal for us is to make being a newcomer um, as less daunting as possible, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and if I kind of look at all of the stories that you're documenting, one of the things that I would love to see is like after the first season ends, you know, what if we could we could take all of those conversations um, well, today we have chat GPT. So, um, what if we could take all of those conversations and like write a definitive guide to being a newcomer, yeah. right? Um, in North America and, and let's see what that looks like, right? Yeah. When, when people look this up, I think it is our responsibility to document our journey, yeah. um, the good, the bad, the ugly, and what to avoid. Mm. Right. So the next generations of people who are coming, we, we, we glorify the hardship too much. Bro, we glorify yeah. the hardship too much. You know, we have to, we have to live, right? It, it shouldn't always be like this, where it's like suffering and suffering and suffering. We have to live, yeah. right? And that's why, like, I, I look, like you said, very intentionally, you know, identify with um with uh chica chica and um you know um the, the folks from afropolitan because like we need to think differently about our lives we deserve it mm-hmm. right we deserve it to think of what africans in the diaspora could look like what africa could look like beyond just hurt and suffering the yeah. suffering isn't going to go anyway so yeah. if, if it's not going anywhere, then some of us have to be able to choose the opposite and glorify the gain so that other people know that it is possible yeah. in, in that end, right? Like recently, someone commented on, um, you know, Nadia's company, um, Eden Life, yeah. right? And, and I kept saying, you know, when people say, oh, why are we funding companies like Eden Life? Like, really, is that a need? Like, yeah, yeah, but like, why not? Like, why exactly. not? Right, why not? Is it just our portion to sit in Lagos traffic for three hours, go home, and have to go make pounded yam? Right? Yeah. We, we, is we, is we that the future? A lot. We do that too much. No. I think Nadia is building an amazing thing. I did some work with him um, between last year and early this year. I think they're building something really amazing. Yeah, I'm, like, They're one of those startups I'm really rooting for. Yeah. Like, I'm like, if I was still in Nigeria, that's something I would definitely pay for. Like, pay for. Bro, we're the same people who don't mind spending thousands on Ashoke, right? But at the same time, having food delivered to me at home so I don't have to cook is a burden. <laughs> we live over here and we all use Uber Eats, don't we? <laughs> like, I can stop at a chop bar and not feel guilt. But the fact that someone is picking up my clothes to go wash is too much. Like, even I need to constantly remind myself because my wife tells me all the time, like, I need a cleaner, right? I don't want to be doing this stuff, right? And at first, I used to find it so hard to, to, to get, but I was like, 
Yeah, like, why should she have to wake up on a Saturday morning and then mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out who's going to do what chore and what? We need to rewrite our programming, right? And for, and for us, like, I think of Eden Life and I think of, like, where Flurry is going and what we want to do. Like, think of how many people today, right, are starting to suffer from, like, lifestyle diseases as a result of the foods that we're eating. Mm. We're more sedentary. We're not moving as much, right? If, if I got your dad a nutritionist, who's going to be making the food that the nutritionist is suggesting? Because we know that when auntie comes from the hospital to come and take care of my dad, auntie is not there to start checking and making, no, she's mm. going to cook what she knows. Mm. And so companies like Eden Life are going to help us help our parents be healthier, right? If I can pay 2,500 uh, uh, Naira every month for my dad to get food, right? Mm-hmm. I would do that. Mm-hmm. And those are the companies that exist to, to be able to help us live a higher level of life. Yeah. Well, we just need to rethink the way that we think of our own selves because a lot of the things stems from like our own challenges with understanding who we are and the fact that we do deserve, right, a bit of grace and, and niceness. Mm. It's not a crime. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sam. Like, this has been amazing. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate yeah, it. It's always so been, much. you know, a pleasure uh, talking to you. I think, you know, similarly, um, the work that you're doing is is really, really great. Um, telling our own stories is one part of it. Like, literally telling our own stories is yeah. one part. In the last 25, 30 years, right, the biggest break that Africa has caught has been the perception shift that Afrobeats has created for us. Yeah. But Afrobeats is basically storytelling through music. Yes. Yep. We've, we've always had it. Yeah. Right? We've always had it. But we're digging into it. And all of the first that we see with Nigerian music leading the way, right, it opens up people's mind. And it's like sowing a seed. If they can accept your music, then they can accept that goodness can come out of the place. Yeah. If they can accept that goodness can come out of the place, then they can accept that opportunities can come out of the place. This year too, yeah. yeah. And we need to start thinking of everything that we do from that same perspective. Yeah. If Brenner Boy can shout from the roof of you know, the biggest you know, concert hall, then our businesses can be relevant. Our language is not the problem. Because as you can see, you know, these kids have no problem singing, singing uh, uh, Ashake in North Dakota, right? It means our language is not the problem. Our food is not the problem. All the kids that I know now want to eat goat soup. Our food is not the problem, right? We just need, we just need to sell the right stories. And like yes. everyone else is done, we need to tell the right I, I totally agree with you. Like, I mean, I said to someone that I'm totally obsessed with storytelling in the sense that because I feel like that's where the world is right now. You need to tell yeah. the right stories. If you, because yeah. that's how culture changes, or that's yeah. how behavior of things change. Yeah. Um. Well, thank you again so much. Um. This has been totally, totally amazing. I mean, like this has been the longest recording so far, and I, I've loved every second. I was like, I, I looked. At, I was like, gosh, we've done an hour already. Like, I'm like, okay, oh, yeah. that was good. Yeah.